for some basis here. The um, it looks like we're attempting to bring back the beatniks, uh, doing some poetry reading, doing some storytelling tonight. So that's kind of what I thought. Shout out uh, Jack Kerouac. Shout out Ginsburg. Shout out Bob Dylan. Um, I hope none of you mind, but thank you all for coming out this evening uh, and celebrating National Poetry Month with us. Uh, it's encouraging to see so many writers and storytellers in Fulton County under one roof. Welcome. <laughs> we just started. The importance of events such as these cannot be overstated enough as to the life and heart they bring to a community. Uh, I saw everybody snapping their fingers. David Hazeldine from the Shopper's Guide was by my office at the library this week, and uh, in typical David Hazeldine fashion, he gave me the history of snapping fingers. It started during the 1950s in Greenwich Village, where a generation of American youth dropped out, calling themselves beatniks, and gathered in dingy basement apartments to read their poetry. I just wanted to start by thanking Jessica for organizing and hosting the event this evening. Jessica. <laughs> Jessica has worked hard to create a space for creatives in our community to gather. Thank you, Jessica. You are amazing. You have filled a void in Fulton County, and for that I am grateful. I would also like to thank Andrea Steinbeck, director of the Fulton County Public Library, for her love and devotion to the arts and her keen insight and direction in building a library we can all be proud of. Thank you, Andrea. You are astounding. <laughs> the work being done by both of these talented women is all inspiring. Jessica contacted me to be the MC for the evening. I will do my best. And Andrea suggested partnering with Jessica as we share a similar vision and mission. Again, I will do my best. Uh, having spaces such as this or the public library to gather and build healthy relationships is fundamental to the health and life of the city. A place to breathe out our ideas collaboratively share our hopes and fears. All right, who am I? I am the literacy director at the Fulton County Public Library. My mother named me Timothy Rowe, though I hear she wished rather to name me Chris after Chris Christopherson, but was vetoed by my father. <laughs> Both of them are here this evening. Uh, I, I brought with me this evening a couple projects that I'm working on, as well as a sign-in sheet, which is over on that table. Um, if any, anyone here would like to put their name and contact information, I as well have leaves that are cut out on a cricket. I do a project called Poet Tree at the Fulton County Public Library. There are free books from last year's Poet Tree. The idea is that you take a leaf, write a poem on it, and I put it out on the tree, and then I later scan them uh, scribe them into a document and then print a book. Uh, so there are a bunch of leaves over there, free books, and sign in uh, if you will. Should have followed Andrew's advice and not stayed with me. How shall the evening unfold? I will introduce each writer, and if you wish to give us some context as to who you are and anything else you wish to share about your writing or yourself, and then read a short. It's as simple as that. I'm going to kick off the evening with something I wrote about writing. Seems rather redundant, I am sure, and I, but I'm always asking myself ridiculous questions. I once asked myself and attempted to capture the fairy, what is writing? 
We find symbolic gestures throughout history that point to the Egyptian god Thoth, the trickster god Hermes. We hear of the Ten Mahi Veja, Makalamuki, Matangi, and some Greek meanderings about one's muse. But what was writing? That is what I couldn't really find. After much deliberation, I decided that I had no idea what right. For whatever reasons we do them, whether we choose to reveal or conceal our motives, because to not do seems like a bad idea. So, I wrote this. What is writing? Hell if I know. Probably spellcasting and have fun. Next, we have Andrea Steinbeck with a refreshing retelling of an age-old story. So give it up for Andrea. I'm the director of the Fulton County Public Library. This story was written 20 years ago during my senior year in high school. The assignment was to retell a story everyone knows. This is Through the Eyes of a Rebel Munchkin. I'm sure you've all heard the story of the Wizard of Oz. Well, that story is greatly exaggerated and the facts have been extremely twisted. While most of the Munchkins hated the Wicked Witch of the West, there was an underground group of Munchkins known as the Mutineers who actually liked the witch. I mean, as far as witches go, she really wasn't that bad. If you ask me, the problems didn't start until that girl Dorothy came along. She was nothing but trouble from the moment she suddenly appeared in Munchkin land. As soon as Dorothy arrived, things changed. Come on, she snatched the witch's, the witch's sister with her house. Dorothy had it coming. If Dorothy had crushed my little Munchkin sister, I'd be none too happy. And to top the murder off, the girl stole the witch's, witch's sister's shoes. They were a nice shade of ruby red, but a person shouldn't go stealing off the dead. When the Munchkins first noticed Dorothy, they thought she was there to save them, but I knew better. She was a bad omen. When the mutineers first saw her, we all knew something wasn't quite right, but the regular Munchkins treated her like a queen. They sang her little songs and gave her gifts. She received all this for murder and theft. When the good witch floated down in her bubble and told Dorothy to follow the yellow brick road, the mutineers gave me the assignment to follow her to see what she was really up to. I accepted, knowing that the risk would be high. I bravely took off, making sure to hide from the girl. For a while, nothing happened. She just kind of skipped down the road. Yes. She skipped. I think she was about 20 cards short of a full deck. I was beginning to think maybe we were wrong about her. Maybe she was here by accident. Then she met the Scarecrow. The Scarecrow was stupid. Maybe stupid isn't a strong enough word. He made a rock like a genius. The mutineers had put him on a pole for a reason. He was just too stupid to be walking around amongst the munchkins. He was on that pole because he was a danger to himself and society as a whole, but Dorothy just went ahead and took him down. Once off the pole, the scarecrow began to dance and sing a song about being stupid. I almost yelled that he was stupid and he should get back up on that pole before I made him regret it. But then I remembered that I had to stay quiet. Finally, after what seemed like forever, they finished singing. Yes, she started singing too and started skipping down the road. A few hours later, they found the tin man. He was made of tin and had no heart. 
he was basically evil. Um, <laughs> we had a few hundred munchkins massacred by this heartless man. The Tin Man was rusty, and he loved the dr dramatically act rustier than he really was, which caused Dorothy to oil him. He then proceeded to sing a song about not having a heart. Of course, the other dimwits started singing, too. <laughs> I was beginning to slowly fall into the depths of madness, and Dorothy's dog Toto kept looking at me. I was afraid the dog was going to give me away, but then I remembered the fools were too busy singing to notice me. When the group came upon the lion, I was hoping the lion would run away from them because he's scared of everything, but of course he didn't. He sang a song about being a coward. I could not believe the stupidity of these people. They finally started skipping again, but it took, a, it took them a long while. Their story about the poppy field is downright wrong. There was no evil doing involved. The truth is actually fairly boring. After further investigation, the mutineers concluded that Dorothy had brought Toto's flea powder and it had somehow fallen out of Dorothy's basket. The flea powder caused a near-fatal poisoning in Dorothy, the lion, and Toto, causing them to pass out. Luckily, I was far enough away that I didn't come into contact with the powder. When they finally came to and realized they were close, they, they, they finally came to and realized they were close to the Emerald City. They sang a song about seeing the wizard. The wizard was a known liar and a cheat. He didn't appreciate the Munchkins, and they were not clever enough to even question anyone about the wizard. I followed them to the Emerald City, despite feeling that they weren't smart enough to do anything. After walking 20 more miles, we reached the Emerald City. The Emerald City didn't look like an emerald anymore. It didn't shine like it once had. But I digress. They approached the building. I was tired, so I stayed outside and slept a while. I figured that it would take them an hour to find the door, but I plenty of time for a nap. When I finally did sneak in, I found them talking to the wizard. I could tell that the wizard was as phony as the scarecrow was stupid, but the dummies got scared and decided they, they had to go kill the witch. They made their way to the witch's castle. Many unimportant things happened along the way, so I won't bore you with the details. Let me just tell you that it involved trees throwing apples. Yes, I was laughing. This next part is where their story turns into a big lie. Their story doesn't even compare to mine, which is obviously the truth. In their story, they are the heroes who saved the day. Everyone was fine before Dorothy. The day didn't need to be saved. After I reviewed the mutineers to give them a mission update, they contacted the witch to let her know that there was going to be an assassination attempt on her life. She was understandably very upset. She needed to protect herself, so she ordered her flying monkeys to find the four suspects. The monkeys flew away in a desperate attempt to save the witch. If my memory serves me right, the flying monkeys arrived just as the dimwits were finishing up another song. I have no idea how the ever-so-bright ones knew the songs and dances, but many, maybe people without great minds think alike. The song confused the flying monkeys for a second. When the monkeys came back to reality, they knew they had to capture the fools. The flying monkeys managed to get a hold of Dorothy and her dog, but the other three were so senseless they outsmarted the monkeys and hid. I don't know what happened to Dorothy once the flying monkeys took her before the assassination, because I was trying to keep an eye on the three fools. They were hiding behind a tree. Yes, all three of them behind one tree. <laughs> let me tell you, they really blended in. A flying monkey descended to let them know what had happened to Dorothy. The three were scratching their heads, shrugging their shoulders, because they didn't understand. The monkey tried to explain the situation very slowly, using crayons and markers. It finally became clear to them that Dorothy was with the witch. The flying monkeys felt sorry for them, or the flying monkey felt sorry for them, so he led the way to the castle. By the time they made it to the castle, Dorothy had killed a number of flying monkeys and had a bucket of water. 
I wasn't sure what she was going to do, but I had a very bad feeling. She threw the water onto the witch, and I instinctively jumped in front of the witch in order to block her from the water. It was too late. The witch had already begun to melt. I cheerfully radioed the mutineers to tell them the witch was dead. There was silence on the other end, but I remember hearing faint crying in the background. After killing the witch, Dorothy took many of the witch's belongings. She filled her basket up. She was clearly a kleptomaniac. The group left the castle, singing a joyful song about murder, before the flying monkeys. I, let me go back. The group left the castle, singing a joyful song about murder, I might add, before the flying monkeys realized what had happened. The munchkins hated the flying monkeys, but the witch had accepted them and had given them food and shelter. But the witch was dead now, so the monkeys had nowhere to go. The poor dimwits hadn't even considered the consequences of their actions, but I suppose that's what cold-blooded criminals do. I made my way back to the mutineers' headquarters. By the time I returned to Munchkinland, the criminals had already robbed and killed the wizard. They claimed that the wizard flew away in a hot air balloon, but the mutineers know the truth. They murdered him. The, scare the scarecrow had stolen the wizard's diploma. It even said Wizard of Oz on it. The scarecrow told the munchkins that the wizard had given the diploma to him to make him smart. From what I observed, nothing was ever going to make a scarecrow smart, and everyone knows a piece of paper alone does not equal intelligence. The, the others had stolen things as well. The Tin Man took a heart-shaped cloth, and the lion stole all of the wizard's medals. Eventually, Dorothy started whining. She kept saying she wanted to go home. Despite the crime she had committed, she expected to be allowed to leave. I'm honestly surprised she didn't want to stay longer and continue her crime spree. The good witch heard Dorothy and told her that the red slippers were magical. If Dorothy clicked her heels together three times, she would be taken home. But the witch warned that the shoes would have to stay in Munchkinland because they were going into a museum. Dorothy started bawling, so the good witch told her to keep the shoes and just leave because she was annoying. <laughs> Dorothy quickly made her way to Munchkinland without saying goodbye to anyone, not even her three accomplices. After I completed the investigation and submitted my final report, I concluded that Dorothy had committed no less than 29 crimes and that the three other fools were accessories to multiple murders. The mutineers made sure the three of them were put back where they once belonged. They even chained them to heavy things just to make sure they couldn't escape. Ever. I guess that's the end of my story. Nothing else exciting has happened since the Dorothy incident. The Munchkins worship her to this day. I decided I needed a change. I left the mutineers in Munchkinland to become an Oompa Loompa. Working in Willy Wonka's factory isn't that bad, and there are perks. The free candy makes up for the trouble of dyeing my hair green and painting myself orange. I suppose everything ended up happily ever after. Well, except for the Wicked Witch, her sister, many flying monkeys, and the wizard. Their tales ended unhappily ever after. <laughs> Some, somehow that seemed like a first-person narrative, but I don't know exactly. <laughs> <how that went. laughs> All right, next we have Steve Hen. I know not much about Steve Hen other than he's from Warsaw and he was an English teacher. But welcome, Steve. I, uh, 
I'm in Warsaw where I teach English at the high school there. I'm going to read from a few books that I've had published by various presses. Um, I'm not to be too obnoxious about how much time I take. Um, there's a Frank O'Hara poem called Ave Maria that begins, Mothers of America, let your boys go to the movies. So uh, this is a poem that takes that poem as an inspiration. I wrote it for my mom. It's called Hail Mary. And uh, it, it borrows a, two different lines from O'Hara's poem. Mothers of America, take your boys to the library. Introduce them to the pleasures of reading so they don't mature into 40-year-old overgrown adolescents who still play smear the queer and give each other purple nipples. Show them adventure and excitement that can all be experienced safely between the ears. It's true we need adults who can fix stuff and beefy security guards for an evening with concerts featuring some washed up pop star or group from an ancient decade. But it would also be nice 30 or 40 years from now if our president had literacy skills. They'll stop bouncing basketballs incessantly against the kitchen wall and scampering up the stairs like they live in a zoo. But they'll be too busy using context clues to decipher what ameliorate means, or writing poems for their second grade crushes with the empathy and self-awareness of people who've experienced the minds of others. Rather than vandalizing on Halloween, or sneaking bakes, or snorting pixie sticks for practice. If they like reading, you'll pay them forward into the funds whose dividends are your boy is becoming a better person. And if they don't like reading, they'll either be in the sports or crushing things or become officers in their local incel chapter. So don't blame me if you don't take this advice. And more wars are started, more women are abused, and they all learn to drop bombs with drones at enemy wedding parties from remote, remote locale using a joystick that functions like a video game controller and feel guilty when they're old for all their toxic, toxic mistakes. Or even worse, not. could never live here, my brother said, inviting me into a pastel rental among pastel rentals backed up on a man-made lake not 200 yards from Lake Michigan. I said a man-made lake not 200 yards from Lake Michigan. It's a different breed of person, he claimed, and it's true my brother and I don't come from money, from ease. Everything to him has been a competition, usually with himself, as they say of golf. He wanted retirement by 50 and got it, wanted a half basketball court in his basement and dug it out, laid it in, the house temporarily quivering on stilts. No one engineers the perfect life. He bore the death of his wife from cancer, shaky voicing the eulogy. I looked about the church he attends three hours away, all Catholic churches labored to set the same scene, and I almost remembered when I was so young that I found the mystery of the stained glass and the faint odor of incense comforting. But it has been very long since that God puzzled over us. Once, in third grade, I sang so loudly at mass after my best friend moved away 
and our teacher touched me on the shoulder and said, Stephen, that's enough. <laughs> this is called a sign of affection at the butt of a joke. It's about, it's about various things, but about, uh, I wasn't sure if kids in my class were playing a joke on me. I can understand why you take a dog for a run in the woods, but not a radio. I have to remind myself I didn't earn this piece. People greet me on the sidewalk. Do I look like less of a drunk? I wore my Bowie shirt to the busy woods because I didn't want to turn off the evangelicals with the vegetarian alcoholic one. Sunday, some of the sermonized mean mug my bi-curious hero shirt anyway. My second year teaching, kids posted Labyrinth Bowie on the back classroom wall and joked about his package. Then they bought me that t-shirt. A sign of affection or the butt of a joke. Hard telling. Surreal teenager. Once, a student really enjoyed telling how in the car line leaving campus at free one afternoon, she got a cell phone shot of me driving and picking my nose. Sacred Heart Elementary, picking my nose and flicking it in the manner of wishfully feral six-year-olds everywhere. The sixth grade class, the oldest, would gather on our concrete playground, lined with dodgeball circles and spiked with the tethered ball poles, near which Ricky Ramos flipped me crashing on the unforgiving ash-black asphalt in second grade on my left knee. And they would talk, that's all, talk and talk grin around the circle with orthodontic beatifics and discuss all kinds of things, maybe even the kinds of things one wouldn't mention to a priest. I was not privy to these Indian-style seating round pavement discussions with hands on knees. I was busy reluctantly exchanging coats with the frenemy who liked mine better than his, and whose social circle I so wanted to penetrate I let him have his way with me. Why do they do that, I asked my mom erstwhile public school teacher who would join the Catholic staff after I entered into the horror of seventh grade. Oh, they're just mature. They're a mature group, she'd say, rolling that word around in her mouth like it meant the Pope would soon canonize our entire sixth grade class in the same That ended the discussion, but not my curiosity, but I could never get close enough to eavesdrop successfully, nor could I allow myself to stand still long enough to listen in the mystifying fall of 1982, that dick who was wearing my coat always had a dodgeball in hand and was always taking aim at me. <laughs> and uh, uh, about a decade ago, I had a couple books published by uh, NYQ Books, New York Quarterly's publishing arm. 
pause, reflect, observe the paths your heart your heart is taking. Only observe. Breathe. You you are not deserving of anything. You exist to climb the mountain, to rest, to reflect, and to breathe. As you run, can you hear it? The forest. It's talking to you. You needn't worry about the path. Just shut your brain off. It doesn't know the way. The forest only
I know it's hard in this world of shadows to see any light that is right beside you, but I want you to know that you're not alone. I say, and your eyes grow wide. You're the same, is all you can say. I smile and nod as I continue on with what I'm saying. I keep it hidden as well, behind a painted smile that no one else can see past but those that are feeling the same way as us. I want to help you find your light. Can I help you find where it's hidden? I ask you, hoping you will say yes. You nod to me, and my smile only grows as I take your hand and guide you down the hallway, away from the lunchroom into the classroom that is empty, except for the teacher. I knock on the door, and she opens it and lets us in. Then she goes back to her desk, and I pull you over to the dark, dry erase board in the back of the room and hand you a marker. Write whatever you feel or whatever comes to mind. I tell you and start writing myself. You join in only a few minutes later. Pain, pain and smile, hope, light, hidden, not alone. These are a few of the words I write down. I look over to see what you have written down as well. Lies, scars, knife, cut, death, abuse. I read through the words and nod to myself. We are the same in more ways than one. I gently tug on your sleeves. You look at me and I smile. Now let's find a way to erase these words and bring out our lights together. I say and you look at me for a moment before a real smile takes hold of your face and you nod in agreement. Let's start a club for kids like us. We'll call it Find the Light. I say and I know my eyes are shining. You just smile and nod before your marker. Taking your marker and writing at the top of the board in big letters, find the light club. I smile, clap my hands together, because I know this is the start of us finding our lights and helping others to find theirs. Thank you. 
branch or I stumble over a tree. So I can hear their howls and even see them out from the corner of my eye. As we near the end of the forest and step out into a wide opening field, and cool autumn air hits me like a gentle friend hugging and embrace. Yet I had no time to smile as I ran through the field and came to a halt at the top of a misty covered hill. Chocolate eyes meeting with misty yellow ones, brown long hair blowing in the gentle breeze, and a few strands covering my same four-year-old face. As I breathe heavy, misty bluish silver fur rustled by the wind, face to face with wolf and I, yet no fear is in my heart. Shadows and misty wolves come to sit all around us on this windy hill and lift their heads to the crescent clearing sky. Full moon greets them as they begin their song and I howl along. I feel myself being shaken very hard and blink my eyes open to see my mother sitting next to me. All of my siblings are also there looking at me with worry in their eyes. Turns out I was screaming in my sleep. Loud enough to wake everyone in the whole two-story house. After a while, our mom got us all back to bed and back to sleep, but only for the four strings to begin again. My last one is called One Arm Warrior.
Yes, there's a taco truck out back, everybody. 
I can, I can, uh, the tacos are like three dollars and they were delicious. <laughs> and there's free drinks over there also. Oh, free drinks. <laughs> and there's free drinks right here. <laughs> the first one is called Summer. Written several years back. Summer is the heat that brings sunburn. Summer is the season of storm. Summer is a rainy season. Summer is fun. Summer is vacation. Summer is the hottest season. Summer is trips to Mexico, to Europe, to Caribbean. Summer is the hottest season. I walk in the summer heat, sweating and sweating. The summer heat gives me the reddest summer. Summer is the hottest season. This one I've written was published, and my friend uh, told me uh, at that time I was fighting large depression, and I didn't know which way to go. And so she encouraged me, and so it was uh, published in, it's in a book in the library, and that's called uh, the, the Color of Life. Hmm. Silent before the storm. Silent comes forth. Silent grows. Silent keeps growing forth. Then suddenly silent is no more. Wind, thunder, and lightning cuts it off. <clears throat> silent is dead. Peace of silent is no more. Silent cries out. It is gulped up by noise. Silent tries to come forth, and finally silent comes. A new dawn has arise. Peace comes. Peace is forever. Silent come forth once more. Next, we have Jen Becker, who I don't even know who that is, or if they are here. Is there a Jen Becker? No Jen Becker. All right. After Jen, we have Joshua Davy. I also don't know, so I don't know if they're here. Okay, some people signed up online. Bad Jim Becker, bad Joshua Davey. They might still be here later because of my time slot. Sure. Oh, yeah, we are in shape. Yeah, let's start over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does anybody need to take a break? Yeah, go get tacos. Let's take a short break. Yep, and then we'll come back.
Yeah, on the second shelf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, I love your shoes. So tiny. Isn't that story funny? I I especially like the part about the police house. I don't think that you would do that. Yeah. 
we became so close and our love for each other so dear that after a while we both had no more fear. Thank you. Oh, Which one is yours? I keep leaving my paper down there. Dwayne? Correct? Yeah. Yep. You're up. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, before I start with my poems, I wanted to describe the form that, that I'm uh, primarily writing that I want to share with you tonight. Um, about 12 years ago, I got started getting involved in learning more about East Asia. And one of the things I did is I attended a seminar to learn about a style of poetry called Shijo um, from Korea. Now you guys may have heard of haiku, the Baisantai, and all other things stuff, right? Um, Shijo is um, similar in that it's a structured poetry form. Um, it has about five syllables, um, and you can they're split up into um, three lines, but then each line has a break in the middle. Then, um, so the way that I write is six lines. Then. Um, and uh, it's a lot more flexible than you can be at 45, you can be at 49, you can be at 43, it doesn't really matter. So, um, and I'm an English teacher, and this has been the style of poetry that I've taught my students to teach for several years, and I've done seminars and, and stuff in other places too. Um, that it, it's the, like the one thing that always gets the students to go like, I, I didn't know I could do that. I never thought, right? Um, so I love that it has just enough structure, but a little bit of wiggle room um, that it can encourage them to be creative. And that's one of the things I love about poetry. Okay, so let's get to some of my stuff then. Okay, um, some of these poems I'm going to introduce a little story. Some of them I'm going to not. Um, we're going to do the latter for the first one, but the themes of my first few poems will be a familiar theme here, um, that of loss. Um, most CJO poets don't title their poems, but I do. Okay. This is Changing the Limits. Clean sheet between us, standing on opposite sides of the bed. We shake it out, attempt to make persistent wrinkles smooth. But you walk away, leaving me to try to tuck the corners in tight. Um, the next poem then was I started writing it um, when I'd been down to uh, visit my brother. Um, and it was inspired by a moment when, um, let, me, let me, I have to go back a little bit. Uh, a couple weeks earlier, he had called me to say that he and his then wife were, were pregnant, and um, I was going to be an uncle for the first time. And I remember being excited about that. And then two weeks later, I got a call that she had lost it. And that feeling of losing someone or something that I never got a chance to really experience before, like losing the promise of something, that was what inspired this poem. Um, unfortunately, um, a feeling that I got to experience personally then, um, years later. It's called For Cassie, who would have been five. The moon's waning crescent shines dimly cradled in the cold, dark sky. I stand still on this winter night, searching again for your stars. They are hidden, though, like last year. Behind a cloud I cannot see. 
Inspired by an art exhibit I saw it in San Francisco, I think. Out west somewhere. Okay. Um, it's called Inspired by JS. It seems to me that locking is much easier than unlocking. To unlock, one needs both the lock and the right key. But to lock, all one needs is a lock. One hand is enough to click it closed. These are very short poems. You know, I, I can just beat it. You know, <laughs> but they're so good. They are. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, the um, so as I said before, I'm a teacher, and uh, this one is inspired by. Um, uh, something in our elementary school playground for where I was teaching at the time. It's called Playground Tree. In the middle of the playground, a solitary oak stands tall, boxed in by two by fours and gravel, scars where bottom branches once grew, locked off one summer long ago to prevent children from climbing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this one is inspired by a cat um, that I used to have um, who was not as courageous as she thought she was. It's called Alice's Adventures. Sun shining brightly through the glass, Alice meows at the door, pleading. I undo the lock, she steps through, stretching out in freedom and light before taking up her favorite spot on the other side of the same. <laughs> um, this is uh, a poem uh, that I wrote to describe how I am, um, although I'm a teacher, I'm not often a very good student. Um, and I was actually at a poetry seminar that when, I, when I wrote this. Um, it's called the Chilla Crown, uh, which is a, a crown uh, from Korea. It's an artifact. Um, teacher was pointing out um, an artifact I got to see a little bit later when I went to Korea several years after that. In the hands of a learned man, the laser darts around the room, zipping from the curtains to the floor to his jacket, landing soon on a kingly crown which sparkles now with my attention. I'm going to take your finger off the laser pointer. So, as I mentioned, um, I got the opportunity to go to Korea in 2019 with a group of other teachers, and um, we went to lots of temples there, and it was wonderful. Um, although, um, we did find out that they tend to put the, the temples um, up on the tops of mountains and stuff. Yeah, which, um, and I am built for mountain climbing, so, okay. Um, so, I may have been a bit grumpy then. Um, when we would go to these temples and I would see people treating them just like tourist attractions, like, this is a sacred space, I thought, why are you? Okay. This is at Volkolska Temple. She leans her head towards her daughter, smiling at the girl's outstretched hands. They laugh, oblivious to the crowds in the temple courtyard. Meanwhile, my own judgment 
includes the serenity I see. Um, this next one, I'm just going to read. It's called Susie Gets Flowers Again. The flowers arrived at the office before you did this time. Vibrant roses of red and white. I love you so much, baby. Then you show up, wearing long sleeves, and lock the door so you cannot see. Okay, um, I think we're done with the heavy stuff for now. So, we're going to do that other page. There we go. I'm going to end on more lighthearted note. This is Perils of Technology. Connected, no internet. My laptop is taunting me. No worries, though. I've got my trusty Dixon Ticonderoga Black. Drat, broken in. No sharpener anywhere to be found. <laughs> um, one of the, one of the, the hallmarks of the Shido poem is what they call a twist or a turn that takes place in, in the third, the first part of the third part of the poem. Um, so that's what I try to do with these. Um, this one was inspired by being a dad. It's called Progressive Software. Black sock with green stripes at the toe, black sock with red swoosh at the ankle, gray with blue, white with an orange in, each alone left without a mate. Older than me, my son makes a pair. Matching is overrated, Dad. Okay. Um, and the, the last one then is one of my more recent ones. Um, it is not based on anything happening here tonight. Um, personal experience of anything happening here tonight. Uh, it is called Lament of the Chili Head. These are absolutely delicious. Best tacos I've ever had. Oh, yes, I love them. So tasty. Don't change the recipe at all. Two or three surreptitious shakes of Cholula would hurt, though. <laughs> Thank you, Duane. I enjoy all sorts of learning about new forms of poetry, working in literacy at the library. I was just telling Steve, one of Andrea's friends, that uh, we write poems or text poems back and forth, and he lives in North Carolina. He actually uh, writes that form of poetry. So I just learned about it uh, not long ago. But I've worked in Ghazal, which is a Middle Eastern form of poetry. And I was just telling Steve that uh, Andrea's friend, who tends to know every form of poetry that has ever been written, um, spoke to me about disjunctive dragonfly, which sounded to me made up, but when I looked it up, I found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages and PhD theses. It's a form of poetry that I guess has become super popular. Uh, nonetheless, but thank you for sharing. <coughs> I'm not as talented as you, but I do haiku. <laughs> <laughs> Probably was I. <laughs> uh, we have one more speaker this evening, Riley Wallace. Oh, yeah. Riley was at the library. So I said I would not embarrass him. Or... Well, <laughs> too late, huh? Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> Hi, so um, I don't know. I've learned a lot in the past year, probably. Yeah, anyway, I've learned a 
lot in the past year, and I have so much to say that I actually don't know what to say. So anyway, uh, with that being said, my first poem is a tribute to the things that have made my life. To the kid who sat on Grandview Tree, to the man who he'd never be free, to the man who died twice, you fool you and me, to the town I would have lived in my younger days, to the places I would have gone if I had never have gone if I'd stayed, to the musical idols I digged in school, I would have followed in their steps, had she not called me a fool, to the no finish line that was full of cats and dogs, though soon enough the land had gotten a new ball. To the best friend I never had, from time round here, but it still made me sad. To the time I sat and stared at the still blank ceiling, wishing for a happier feeling. To knowing, to knowing you can't see right when your glasses are fuzzy, even when the sky is very sunny. To the, to this not being my life, but I'll end it here, even in denial, you know the end is near. When I've really lived, I'll let you know, but I'll ask again, is it really time to go? I'll sit beside the hickory tree. I ask once again, don't dig me a grave, I want to be free. <laughs> the unexpected dream of Wassel Club. Uh, something must have happened in a past life of mine. I must not have had enough time to take it all in back then. It's a strong feeling, like somber sunny day staring at your ceiling. I must not have known what to do because in this life I still feel too. Am I still the same boy I was back then? Will I take this feeling in to distinguish the bitterness that has lasted many lives yet still survives? I don't remember this body, it must be a new one. The majority of the mysteries has already begun. In other words, the human body is a sour gift, but the soul will always exist. Other souls who have known before, in other lives, a vision or a dream. Yeah. Thank you, Riley. And thank you, is it Yes, the uh, two of our younger readers today. Uh, I think we should give them another round of applause. seeing young students get out and speak uh, is pretty awesome. I think Jess told me that Lindsay Barts would like to read another poem. <laughs> yeah, I think Lindsay would like to read another poem. Yay! And then I think what we're going to do is open it up if anybody else wants to come back up or a little ahead of schedule. So we'll have Lindsay read a poem and then if anybody else has a thought. Yeah, who are the two people? Jen Becker and Joshua Davy. Present, not present. Still absent. Delinquents. <laughs> Beatniks. Gone. Right story about them. Yeah, they didn't even show up for the reading. <laughs> that is. Uh -huh. It may be the two. Jen Becker, Joshua Davy. No. No. Friends of Jessica. <laughs> All right, Lindsay, you're up. Okay. 
And this is O Sweet, oh, O Sweet Sound, O Sweet Sound, yeah. Okay. I sometimes will open up the windows and listen to the birds sing, and it just calms me down. Um, the, chirp, the birds chirp so confidently and proud. It's like they have a message. It's like they have an important message that needs to be sung. When I listen to the sweet, lyrical tone, I'm reminded of how simple it is. Life, love, happiness. It brings me clarity. It brings clarity to light. Through all the consuming darkness, I've been nesting. To a world of jaw-dropping splendor and beauty, I'm glad I stopped in for the lesson. Well, I suppose it's the... That's oh, right, I'm turning this off. I don't know why I feel like I shouldn't have this while I'm up here, but... Um, would anybody else like to... Uh, I'm gonna go read that. Sweet. Do you have another one you'd like to read? I could actually finish with something I wrote too, um, sort of as a post-introduction or a conclusion, but... Take care of yourselves. finish up the evening with, uh, I didn't actually plan on doing this, but as people have, have come in, um, I wrote something that seems, I don't know, semi-meaningful to the, to the evening, um, and I, I've spoken before, if people want to put their name and contact information, or if they want to take some of those leaves uh, that have been cut out with the cricket, I put these little books together for a poet tree outside of my office. Um, and these books are free, they're booklets, whatever you want to call them, I make them myself and staple them myself, but there's a whole bunch of them over there which have some local poetry in it. Um, I wrote the introduction, this is, it may seem a little long, but it, uh, I think it sort of speaks to the evening. Uh, what is a poem? I started out with what is writing, and now I'll finish with what is a poem? So I wrote this seraphim, root Hebrew word seraph, Flaming, flaming serpent in English. Dionysius, the Greek god of wine and madness. How to philosophize with a hammer. Thoth, the Egyptian god of writing and law. Incarnate Abraham, father of our faith, learned from Hermes Trismegustus, or vice versa. We shall never know. Form, what form is poetry? The first form image the latter words, our dark reaching into the unknown, waiting for the fiery serpent to descend. Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by this serpent would look at the bronze snake and live. 
Disenchant, people tell me. How, I ask. Poetry bids us throw away explanation, rather ask ourselves hard questions. I dare say a poet is one who has killed Noah Webster without any remorse whatsoever. Image upon image, context understood through subjectivity, poetry destroys objectivity, submits to being clay in a potter's hand. The antithesis, a dictionary. By nature, dictionaries objectify reality, attempting to abstract what can only be cast as a sigil. What does Jonah and the whale teach us? The question is really, how far can your dark reach? Can you find the laws hidden in the text? Maybe the question is, what is the written word? Is it a circle within a circle within a circle as defined by hermeneutics? Jean Cotou unmasks himself. A poet is this. A poet is a liar who tells the truth. Is this a contradiction? So be it. A contradiction it is. What does that prove? To a poet, the only, the only reality is paradox. What then is a poem? I have no idea what a poem is. I do know quite a few poets, though. Let me speak for a moment on the posture of a poet. This may give us a clue as to their being. They are careful as someone crossing an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, clear as a glass of water, receptive as a valley, like the sound of many waters, wielding a double-edged sword, not creating, rather translating. For the last couple months, learn a project, which is what I did at the library, hosted poetry. Leaves were printed from cardstock and cut out on our cricket. Patrons took these leaves and wrote a poem on them to display on the paper tree outside of the literacy office. I would like to thank everyone who took the time and wrote a poem. And I guess I could say this evening for coming out and speaking. Uh, the content and effort in each poem revealed to me that although I may not know what a poem is, I did learn what the essence of a poet is. Modest Courage.